Turn with me this morning in the Word of God to Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. And the funny thing is that Nehemiah chapter 10 actually begins in chapter 9 verse 38. So what I'm going to do is um, do what really the text structure reflects, which is read uh, from verse 38 and then skip to verse 28 and read to the end of the chapter. Will you stand with me now out of respect for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God? Beginning at verse 38, chapter 9, because of all of this, we're making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Now skip to verse 28, chapter 10. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord, and His ordinances and His statutes, and that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land, or take their daughters for our sons. As for the peoples of the land, we who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, for the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people, so that they might Bring it to the house of our God according to our fathers' households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as written in the law. That they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually. And to bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, the firstborn of our herds and our flocks that is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of God. We'll also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine, and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in the rural towns. The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. December 3rd, 1557. March, the beginning of the covenanting movement in Scotland, as a group of nobles ascended, uh, assembled, 
to swear to what was called the common or the godly band, which reads as follows. We perceive Satan and his members, the Antichrists of our time, cruelly do rage, seeking to overthrow and destroy the gospel of Christ and his congregation. Ought, according to our bounded duty, to strive in our master's cause, even unto the death, being certain of the victory in him. The which our duty being well considered, we do promise before the holy majesty of God and his congregation that we by his grace shall with all diligence continue to apply our whole power, substance, and our very lives to maintain, set forward, and establish the most blessed word of God and his congregation and shall labor according to our power to have faithful ministers truly and purely to minister Christ's gospel and sacraments to his people, we shall maintain them, nourish them, and defend them. The covenant language here is obvious. We do promise before the majesty of God. The covenant Language is also expressed in the fact that it binds by oath as they testify that they are calling upon God as witness to enforce the very words of their oath. And the point of it is to say that these uh, men of Scotland, men of faith, took a covenant on that day, on December 3rd, 1557, to promote the ministry of the word and sacrament at a time in Scotland when it get you killed. And the thing that really strikes the ear as you hear it, or strikes the eye as you see it, is the fact that they say, this is what we ought to do. That we are under moral obligation to maintain and sustain the ministry, the true and pure ministry of Christ and His church, even upon the pain of death. It is the duty of the people of God, they say, to covenant publicly for the blessing of the people of God. And the oughtness of it all flows from the experience of grace. You see, the Scottish nobility and the Scottish citizens and believers of that uh, infant era of the Reformation in Scotland believed because they had experienced and tasted the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ through the, pre- the pure preaching of the gospel that it was their obligation to covenant in order to uphold and to maintain the church in order that it may be for the blessing of the whole of the community. So the Scots covenanted to bring blessing upon the church. Today, as we turn another page, another chapter in the book of Nehemiah, as we press forward in our mini-series entitled Building Community in Zion, we notice here in our text that it testifies to the fact that the, the whole of the people of God voluntarily covenanted publicly before the Lord, and they did it for the very same reason that that subsequent generation of believers and forefathers, ours at least, in Scotland did the same thing. They gathered publicly and voluntarily to covenant before the Lord for the purpose of the blessing of the people of God. Remember the context of of all that we're reading now in Nehemiah as we turned into chapter 7 and we pivoted towards the second half of this book that Nehemiah, having built the walls, those glorious walls, 
those, those walls of Jerusalem, which were for the manifestation and the symbolizing of the great glory of God, those walls would contain a people, and inside of those walls would be a people who are covenanted to Christ. And those people ought to have a community and civic life which match the glory of the walls. Otherwise, the walls were to no purpose. So everything that Nehemiah has been recording here, these subsequent chapters as we move from 7 and 8, and now 9 and 10 was for the purpose of seeking the renewal of the life of the city. And so today as we take up the next chapter in the story of that renewal, building community in Zion and seeing how Nehemiah led the people in spiritual renewal in order they may reflect the glory of those walls. We see today in chapter 10 that they took a covenant. And the essence of the covenant was being away from the sins of the past. Remember our chapter is positioned at the end of verse 9. They've just confessed their sins. And what an awful laundry list of sins it was. And the point of that confession was to say that we don't necessarily own those sins. Those are the sins of our fathers. But those are the kinds of sins which will destroy the church. And those kinds of sins are yet present with us in our attitudes and our desires and in our speech and our manners and our ways. And so they gathered together as the whole of the people of God and they confessed their sin having heard the law read into their ears. They did so so that they would be resolved as a community to turn away from the sins of the past. And now here in chapter 10, we see them taking a covenant in order they may seek to pursue the glory of, the, of God in the present. That's what this is about. This covenant is about turning away from the sins of the fathers in the past and where they may covenantally focus now as the people of God and seeking to pursue the glory of God in the present. The aim of the covenant was for the blessing of the church. And so the purpose of Nehemiah 10 is to teach that public covenanting by the church is for the purpose of the blessing of the people of God. And we're going to see two parts here as we unfold that. The covenanters and the covenant. And I think it's important for us to take a bit of time to think about the covenanters. And I don't want to drill down too deeply into this list of names and try to uh, press every detail, but I think one of the things that we're supposed to do, because of the way our text is sort of categorized and, and how different people are distinguished on this list, is to from the very how it presents to us a picture of the whole of the people of God who took this covenant. And so, as I said already, as we introduce the reading of the word, I, I bring it up again here. Uh, really, verse 38 ought to be the beginning of our text. And historically and sequentially, it fell right at the end of this day of confessing sin, by the way. Uh, but for what? People have put together our English Bibles. They put uh, chapter 38 of, of uh, verse 30 of chapter 9 at the end of chapter 9 rather than making the first verse in chapter 10. But here's how our text would read. It would read, Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing on the sealed document the names of our leaders, our, our Levites and our priests. There's something that's uh, very odd in our text. And you can see this from the grammar and the structure. That basically... 
verse 1 through verse 27 is a giant parenthesis. It is. We don't pick up on the same grammar of our text until you come to verse 28, where this uh, set of categories of of people are are set forth for us here. So once again in verse 28, we see the breadth and the range of the people who were those covenanters on this day. So we see it was the people, the priests, the Levites, and they're expounded in terms of their divisions, gatekeepers and singers and temple servants, and the separated. And then we see the wives and the sons and the daughters and the kinsmen and the nobles. So these are the various categories, and I want to take a moment here to work our way through this list just a bit so that we grasp the range and the totality of people who are obligated, as our forefathers said, to, to take the covenant to swear publicly to uphold certain things that would be for the blessing of the community. So first of all, we have the civic leaders in verse 1. I simply note here that it included the politicians. The politicians, the political class, uh, took the oath of the covenant. We can see that in verse 1. It says, on the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah. The thing that's peculiar here in our text is that the two names here, Nehemiah and Zedekiah, are joined together by the conjunction and. If you look in your Bible in verse 2, you will notice there's no and there, right? The reason is because these two names being joined together indicate that they were a part of one class. And then as you read on, we're beginning to see another class. But, but the point we take, and I think it's a valid one, it's a good one, is that the the highest placed political leaders of the land took the covenant. You'll remember who Nehemiah is, and the person he he serves is no slouch of a king. He's King Artaxerxes, uh, arguably the most powerful king in the world at the time. He rules under him. And yet this man, Nehemiah, as the head, the political head of the territory of Judah, as its governor, in his office takes this oath and covenant. We pass from there to the priests. I don't have much to say here, but it's clear that when you come to verse 2, you pivot away from the political class to the religious class. And we've already been prepared for this because, as you can see, the last category listed in verse 38 is our priests. If you read forward into verse 22, the, the second category of people listed is the priests. And so if you read through verses 2 through 8, basically what you have is the list of the functioning priests of the day. The only thing I would clarify um, here in our text is uh, about 15 simply family heads. We have no idea how many actual priests took this. They're just being listed by family name. Within those families, we would presume, uh, presume there would have been multiple priests. But we see here, the indication is that all of the functioning priests of the day took the covenant. Now you come to verse 9, what else do you see? Well, we pivot towards the Levites, the text tells you. When it says, and the Levites. We've seen them referenced in verse 38. We see them referenced in verse 28. And the thing that we remember about the Levites is they're not the same thing as the priests. Remember, the, the priests come through the tribe of Levi and they are particularly of, of the sons of Kohath. Those were the only ones within the tribe of Levi that were those who ministered before the Lord. But there were other Levites. They came from the other sons within that tribe. And so uh, this Levitical group was actually the largest group 
among the Levites. And we can see here that they're broken down by category as we read on into verse 28 when it speaks of the Levites, comma, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants. So there's multiple different kinds of, of variations and differentiations uh, among the Levitical class, if you will. These people were not allowed to sacrifice. They were not allowed in the Holy of Holies. They were not allowed to approach the Lord. But they were assistants, basically, of the priests. They had duties that got um, amplified and developed and over time. But, but again, the Levitical class here, this is what we know, is represented here in the list of the people who took the covenant. And then that brings us to what I think we could call the tribal leaders at verse 14. Notice the heading there in verse 14. The leaders of the people. And then it goes on to Parash and Pahath Moab and Elam and Zatu and Bani. And again, this is an, another very long list of names. And some of these names you will have seen if you would look back, for instance, in Nehemiah chapter 3, which describes uh, the people who were a part of the rebuilding of the wall. But the point here is that now Nehemiah has transitioned from speaking about the civic leaders to the priests, to the Levites, and now back to what we may call the nobility or what we might call uh, the tribal leaders. And we see them referenced again in your text in verse 29. Their kinsmen and their nobles were also a part of the covenant. The thing that I really would spotlight here for us, and I find the deepest interest in, is when we come to verse 28, and that is to the families. Notice here, the text read, And all those who separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who had knowledge and understanding. And the first thing that we grasp hold here is this word separated. Because it reminds us of what we read back in chapter 9, verse 4, when they began this service of confession. Uh, we were told that they separated themselves from the from the people of the land. And, and the point of the separation from the people of the land was not based in racism or, or, or some sort of cultural animus and hostility. The point of it was to say they separated themselves from the people who were not covenanted. They separated themselves from those who were not enrolled in the covenant, who had not been circumcised and had shown no interest in becoming a part of the people of God and the family of God by joining it by way of covenant. That option was available to people in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 12 tells us that if a foreigner wants to participate in the Passover, it left very specific instructions about they had to own the covenant, that all of the male descendants in the house had to receive circumcision. So the fact is, when we hear about these separated, we're hearing about the fact that the people of God are seeking to own their identity before the Lord. They are distinguishing themselves from their neighbors. It doesn't mean they were angry at them or had hostility towards them. It means that they simply understood they were engaging in religious activity. They were engaging in something that the unbeliever had no part in. You see, they are marking out the outlines and the contours of this community. And it would only be those who were engrafted into it by way of covenant. And then the text gets more specific now, of course, as it speaks of the separate, it moves on to speak of 
their wives and their sons and daughters and those who had understanding. In other words, it incorporated the wives as a part of this covenant community because by way of covenant, they were under the headship of their covenanted husband. But at least it's important to note that even the women were in this assembly and the women took the covenant as well. No one was excluded based upon sex or gender. And then we come to the last statement, which really stands out to me because it speaks of the son's And the daughters. It reminds us again of the language of Nehemiah 8, where the text goes out of its way to say that even even the children were there for the hearing of the law of God. And we said that sounded familiar to our ears because the prescription of Deuteronomy 31 was that when the law of God was to be read publicly in the seventh year, that it was to be even the little ones and the children. And the reason being is because Well, the children of believers are a part of the covenant. The reason why the children of believers can stand here and take the covenant is because they are marked out for Christ. Under the old covenant, that was in the form of circumcision. And in the new, that is in the form of baptism. And so here they are. We have this vast throng of worshipers here. I don't know if they're on the hillside and in the town square. It doesn't tell us. But one thing it tells us is that it was a vast mosaic of people. It was the politicians. It was the priests. It was the Levites with the gatekeepers and the singers and the temple servants. And it was the tribal leaders, the heads of the clans. And then it was the people and it was the wives and it was the boys and the girls and the children. What it is, is the totality of the community came together, and on this day, the whole of them stood before the Lord, and they raised their right hand, and they covenanted with God. This is the point that I want to make before I move on, that public covenanting is an act which is prescribed by Scripture. And the very act of public covenanting, which is prescribed in Scripture, is the covenanting of the whole of the people of God. It's not just the men of the congregation. It's not simply those who are interested. It's everyone. According to their office and their station and their place in life, God calls them to covenant. And the thing that really grabs our attention here is the fact that it's the whole of the people of God. Remember, we saw the full scope and sweep of the people of God who were enlisted in the covenant by way of genealogy in Nehemiah 7. We tried to point out some of the distinctions and the variations, but but we wanted to show there is that the people who were given life in the city were the people who were in covenant with God. In fact, we showed you how the text went out of its way to show that some people didn't have a verifiable claim. And we went into chapter 8, and we noticed the next thing that Nehemiah did to establish the city life of Jerusalem was to not just show who was in covenant, but he read the law of God to them all in order that they may be prepared for spiritual revival. And the thing that stood out in our thinking as we read about that reading of the law, that as the people of God heard the law read, they wept. They wept because they hadn't heard these things before. They wept because of the piercing and the penetrating power of the law of God. 
They set aside an, an entire half of the day and they just sat there and they let the words of Scripture stream into their ears. And then the next day, we saw that the heads of household sent the ladies back home and they sat under the, the ministry of Ezra for days. Because uh, a, a hunger for the Word had been cultivated. And the reason that's so important is because there's no raising up of the city life. There's no blessing of the city. There's no rebuilding of the community in Zion unless the people who are its inhabitants and its citizens understand their calling before the Lord through the Scriptures. And then they set aside a special day of repentance. Read about that in chapter 9. It was the oddest thing that on the 24th day of the seventh month they would do this. Because the 22nd day of the seventh month was the last holiday for another six months. There was no biblical mandate for them to gather to confess. They did it because their hearts had been gripped by the Word of God and by the knowledge of their sins and by their awareness of the fact that there would be no health among them if they didn't confess and turn away from the sins of the past. Reminds us this morning, people of God, that repentance is twofold, isn't it? Genuine and sincere repentance is twofold. The first part of repentance is when I come to that point in my life, whether it's, due, uh, whether it's at my conversion or at some subsequent point, as I've entered into the Christian life and I've been living in sin, there comes a time where repentance needs to happen when I pivot from my ways. Then I turn from them. There has to be that breaking from sin, that acknowledgement of sin, that confession of sin, that turning away from sin. But you know, the New Testament says it can't just be with a worldly sorrow. Remember the giant alligator tears of, of, of um, Esau. He, he cried and searched for his birthright with tears, but to no avail. Because you see, the repentance that's under Christ is not like the repentance of the world. It's a godly sorrow. And the one is that we turn away from our sin, and the other is that well, we, we seek to put in this place what's right. Here we come into the next logical step of the community, seeking its restoration under Christ. They've confessed their sins, and here at the very end of this day of confession now, Verse 38 indicates to us, now. You see, having heard the words of Christ, they were ready to make real amendment. And it was the whole of the people of God. I, I keep wanting to stick that into our thinking. The whole of the people of God. You see, we're built as a community. We are built as a community. The Bible uses the metaphor of family. It speaks of family inheritance. It talks of covenant. It speaks in terms of bonds and relationships. But we're all bound together. And so that's why it's so significant that 
what's under the spotlight here probably takes up the, the balance of our text, or at least half of it, is just the identification of the names and the categories so that we would see visually, I guess, and consider conceptually how this represents the whole of the church gathering together. Because that's how real change happens. I, I'm responsible for my life, that's true. But I'm also responsible to be a good neighbor to you. That's what we see going on here. The politicians, the priests, the tribal leaders, and even the children, they banded together. And by doing that, they show us the way to blessing as a congregation, as the church. It must be the whole of the people. We look now to see the covenant itself and the context. I've already indicated this. But, you know, we really grasp hold of the context as we read in verse 9 because of all of this. It's no problem for me to repeat what the all of this is. The all of this is what we've been seeing, chapter 8, the reading of the law. And by the way, that wasn't just the reading of the law. The clear indication of the text is that the Levites and the priests who were standing there to assist Ezra in the reading of the law would, would begin to teach and apply the word of God in very specific ways. And one way I know that got through is the confession of sin that you see here is very detailed and very specific. But also... The very covenant that they form, we're going to see this in a moment, which is really the heart of the text, is very specific. They knew precisely what they were covenanting to uphold, and they understood precisely what was necessary as the people of God to behold. And the reason they knew that is because of the reading of the Word of God. Because it was expounded and made clear and applied to them. You see, they heard the whole word. They heard the law, and they heard the gospel. They heard about heaven's mercies, and we know that here because of this great statement that's, that's fashioned back here in the midst of the confession, beginning at verse 7 of chapter 9. Uh, you are the Lord God who chose Abraham. This is the gospel unto them. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham. This is the gospel. They understood that they were in covenant uh, with God by way of sovereign electing grace. They heard the law. They heard about all the sins expounded and given illustration by specific historical incident. You see, the context here is of this full hearing of the Word of God, this full awareness and consciousness of, of sin, the, the awareness of, well, just the the endless overflow of God's mercies. That's one of the things we tried to emphasize as we talked about what sustains us in being a confessing people. And it was that littered throughout, literally littered throughout this confession, we would have one statement after another, after reflecting upon the sins and the confession of sin that would magnify and amplify the mercy of God. He never gave up on them. You read in verse 29, they, they acted arrogantly. They turned a stubborn shoulder and a stiffened neck. And then verse 30, however, you bore with them for many years. Verse 33, you have dealt faithfully. But the balances of that is also said, but we've acted wickedly. So this is your context. As we come into verse 38, all of that is, is to be on our minds because 
literally it seems that they, they pivoted away from confession to covenant. You say the knowledge of the Word of God, the knowledge of divine mercies, uh, the knowledge of God's call to righteousness was so profoundly gripping to them that they moved from confession to covenant. Now, you've noticed I've called this covenant repeatedly, and you may have looked in uh, your text and said, well, I, I don't see the word covenant. In fact, it's in mine just above um, as, a che- as a heading to the section. It says a covenant results, but believe me, those aren't inspired words. Those are the editor's words. So, so why are we calling this a covenant? And the answer is because the language of, of covenant is here. We don't have to have the exact explicit, uh, explicit term covenant to be used in order to know that this was a covenant. There's three things in our text here which make it very clear to us that they were covenanting. And the very first word that I point your attention to is making. Oh man, I hope you have a different translation in your Bible. You should. Because they were not making. They were cutting. That's the word in the Hebrew. They were karat. They were cutting. And when we hear that word cut, our minds go to what? Our minds go back to Genesis 15. When, when God inaugurated his covenant with Abraham, he literally cut the covenant. And you know how he cut the covenant as he instructed Abraham to slaughter a series of beasts and to cut their carcasses and tear them in two and create a makeshift path through which the Lord himself passed. This is the beginning of this word covenant as a synonym of, of cut as a synonym for covenant in the Old Testament. So in other words, to, to cut an agreement is the covenant. And that's simply confirmed by the next word you hear, an agreement. An agreement. The word here means a binding arrangement. It is literally a synonym for covenant. And the fact that it is in writing and the fact that it is sealed only reinforces that because we understand from the context of the day that this is how covenants were framed and fashioned. They were written agreements with with specifications and stipulations. And then the last thing that points to the fact this is a covenant, it's uh, located in verse um, 29 where it says, they took an oath and curse. Well, oath is a synonym for covenant, and virtually all of the biblical covenants of the Old Testament have this element of curse within them, which we are invoking divine curse upon ourselves should we fail to seek to uphold the terms of the covenant. I want you to notice here that they were very serious about their commitment, as it says in verse 29. They joined with the kinsmen, the nobles, and their... And an oath to walk in... God's law. There's your contract. The people of God as a whole covenanted. They cut a covenant with God and they said, we call down a curse upon ourselves." You see, every oath and vow you take has that implied. You are calling upon God to judge you if you should fail to uphold your word. You know, if we really believed that, I think there'd be a lot less trouble. There'd be a lot less trouble. Because when we take a vow, we're 
we're invoking the name of God to bring judgment upon us for our willful disobedience and transgression of those vows. This is why Scripture is so blood-earnest when it speaks about not breaking your word. Again, we use our words today far too flippantly and casually. But imagine if you literally said this to yourself, I'm taking a curse that God would, would, would rain and pour down judgment upon me if I don't uphold this. And imagine we'd be a little bit more sober-minded. Maybe we wouldn't enter in as many agreements as we do. That's possible. Because who would want that? But they did this consciously and they did it willfully because they were seeking the blessing of the community. And so now I want us to go into what is really the heart of the text here to see what it is that they covenanted about. And it's obvious to us that the heart of this covenantal arrangement was a covenant to uphold the law of God. Notice here our text says, they, they take on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and its statutes. Notice here, they covenant to uphold. And this language speaks of duty because it says they took an oath to walk. This is a biblical metaphor used all throughout the scriptures to describe the, the Christian walk or the walk of the believer, you will. It is to certify that the words that are coming out of my mouth are true by the way I live. That my words and my actions are seamless. They're held together. They cohere. They make sense. The other thing, it says that they would keep and observe. Keep means to, command, uh, to keep a command with diligence. And observe is, is, a, is a call to behave in a specific and particular way. So all of the language here, keep and observe and so forth, is about moral action. They covenanted to take moral action. And the scope of it is spelled out. Four distinct terms here are used to refer to that moral action. Law, commandments, ordinances, and statutes. The law, the word is the Torah. It is the reference of the first five books of the Bible. The commandments are, is a word that means the directives, the prescriptions, the things which uh, somebody in authority, the commands that they give to subordinates. The ordinances are the mishpat, the very specific application of the moral principles of the law to life. That's when things get very specific and we have application of that. I, I would argue here in our text when it gets down to talking about upholding marriage and so forth and, and worship. So you have that. And then finally it ends with statutes, which is a word which means something engraven in stone. And so whenever you put something in stone, well, what does that mean? It's about the permanence of it, isn't it? This is about something that's not going to fade away. This is not something that is going to twist and turn uh, with the winds of culture. Something that is a statute, something that is engraven in stone, is something that is fixed and it's firm. And so the fact that they they multiply and heap up terms here is an indication, having read the law, just heard the law, they realize that it was their calling as the people of God to uphold the whole scope of the law, not just the things that they cared about. So this is the heartbeat of the text here that they sought to uphold the law of God. They saw this as the central thing. The rest is simply a set of applications which follow from it. 
but it doesn't diminish their value and importance because they're all very important. But the fact of the matter is that the element or the objective statement of the covenant begins here with the fact that they are placing themselves under the supreme authority of Scripture. Well, there's no other way to covenant. There's no other way to be. This is really the, the, the heartbeat of the church, is it stands under Christ and his authority, which is mediated in Scripture. This is the battle cry of the Reformation, is, is that it's Scripture alone. Outside of that, there's no authority that we are obligated to submit to in the same way. This is it. This is divine revelation. This is inspired by God. It is inerrant, and it prescribes with authority what we must believe and what we'll do. And so here they understand, I think we could say, they were the first generation of Scottish Covenanters, if you will. Because they understood that their calling under Christ was to, to show their allegiance to him by saying, I'm willfully coming under your law. Because you're my Lord. You've paid for me with your precious blood. You've redeemed me with grace. I'm going to show myself as your subject. There's moral clarity here. There's willful commitment to Christ. And the thing is, you took this. You've made this covenant. All of us here have made this covenant. Maybe we didn't think of it in terms of Nehemiah chapter 10, but vow 4 of the vows of membership says, Do you promise to submit in the Lord to the teaching and the government of this church as based upon the Scriptures? All of us here took this covenant. All of us said uh, before God, bring down curse upon thee. I take an oath to walk in the law of God. You did that when you took this vow. You said, I submit to the teaching of Scripture. Are we doing that? <laughs> The last of the vows says, we do this with the help of God. I, I know that. I'm, I'm as weak and mortal as you are. But are we really honestly seeking to do that? Are we seeking to put our life under the scope of the authority of the law of God? Or are we showing up here on Sunday, smiling, feigning our acceptance of this and then going out from Monday to Saturday living like we want? Are we taking our vow seriously? Are you actually submitting to the teaching of the government of this church as prescribed in Scripture? I remind us this morning that a whole lot of people who've done that have not. I remind you this morning that some have wandered away. I remind you this morning that some have been excommunicated. I remind you this morning that some have left and sought membership elsewhere. I remind you this morning that some have left and gone to Rome. I remind you this morning that some have left and repudiated Christianity entirely. And yet, every single one of them took this vow. To hear Judah's covenant this morning that 
as it's read here in verse 29, they themselves took an, a curse and an oath to walk in God's law is a, is a call to us this morning to check ourselves, to make sure that, yes, we've taken this. Are we seeking to, to do this by the help of God? My prayer is that it's so. What's the next one? The next one is um, to guard the spiritual integrity of marriage and family. Look at verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. It, it feels like there's been a, a slip in the gears. We've moved from the law to marriage all of a sudden. Why? The reason is because that happened to have been part of the problem of why the fathers before them continued to slide back into sin again and again. Because, because the law was very clear about it. In Exodus 34, the Lord told the generation in the wilderness that they were not to marry the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And the reason for the prohibition is very plain because his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You see, the restrictions on marriage were not about racism. They were about religion. You're not to marry people who don't own the covenant. You're not to, own, you're not to marry uh, people who, who don't have the faith. And the reason we know that it's not about racism, because Ruth was brought in and she was a Moabitess, and you remember the law that the Moabitess was forbidden into the assembly under the 10th generation. Yet she is engrafted into the covenant tree, and she is listed as the great-grandmother of Jesus Christ come in the flesh. You see, the issue is covenant. The point is to keep the covenant integrity of the people of God. The concern is that you can build these walls all you want as a mark of separation from the world and for the purpose of preserving the line of Judah. But if everybody goes out and marries somebody from the land who is not covenanted before Christ, those walls are useless and they're meaningless. They're a hypocritical show. You see, because the concern is for the children. It's one thing if mom and dad corrupt themselves. It's another thing if mom and dad corrupt their children. So that the next generation of covenanted people are not raised up. And so they took a covenant here to maintain the integrity of marriage and family. And that's the new covenant standard as well. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be found together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Paul is not saying that you can't have an unbelieving friend. He's saying you can't have an unbelieving spouse by intention. It does happen that people get married who are equally unbelievers and one of them gets saved. It does happen that people get married thinking they're both believers and one really isn't. We can't change that. But what he's saying is by intention we're not to enter into covenanted agreements and marriages with people who aren't covenanted. And so they took a covenant here. And remember, the children are saying this too. And so it reminds us this morning, parents, you have, a, you have, a, you have an obligation. You have to instill this into your children. You have to teach your children that they have no part in covenanting and uh, marrying people who aren't in the faith. And young people who are here this morning who are at a marriageable age, you have to resolve to keep the covenant. 
I'm just going to have you squirm in your chairs a minute. I'm just fine. It's, I'm comfortable with it. I've been married for 30 years. So I'll let you squirm in your chair about it. But if you're a marriageable age, you cannot violate this. You cannot covenant to marry an unbeliever or an uncovenanted person. The way to maintain the faith is marry people who have the same faith. One of the saddest things I saw years ago in my internship was a was a congregation that had 75% of its membership was about 65 years and older. And then the trailing off the end of it was a group of younger families who'd recently come to the church. And what I found after a summer of doing pastoral visits is an entire generation had left the church because the pastor never enforced the obligation of marrying within the faith. Some married Catholics, some married people who weren't believers at all. And everybody thought it would be just fine because they all grew up in the church. And the reason, and the fact of the matter is it wasn't fine. The reason is because they didn't take seriously Judah's covenant before the Lord in Nehemiah chapter 10, which is to uphold the integrity of marriage and the family. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land. And we will not take for daughters-in-law from the daughter the land who aren't in covenant, people of God, we have to take this seriously. As parents, we pray for our children that they all find godly spouses. No greater joy is to see it happen. But no greater sorrow for a parent to see them not do this, to see them marry somebody who isn't a believer because of the deep concern you'll have for your children and your children's children and their children. The covenantal perspective shapes the mandate. The third thing here that um, they covenanted to uphold is to keep the Sabbath day holy. As for the peoples of the land who brings wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to, to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of the debt. The only thing I want to focus on here is the fact that they covenanted to keep the Sabbath day holy. And they do it in a very interesting way, because if you go back and you read the prior Sabbath legislation, there's nothing in it, literally, that says you can't buy or sell on the Lord's Day. Or, I mean, the Sabbath day. There's nothing there. The reason why it's different now is because they are surrounded by the nations. The reason it's different now is because they're, they're, they're just a subject community to, to, um, to, to Persia. And, and so you're going to read about later on in the book of Nehemiah how the people of the land would come through the gates of, of, uh, of the city of Jerusalem and they would set up a swap meet there and the people were buying and selling on the Sabbath day. What was wrong with it? Well, here's what's wrong with it. God said not to. And the second thing is, you lose the Sabbath day, you lose the church. You lose the Sabbath day, you lose the church. It doesn't make sense, I guess, when you first hear that, but it's actually true. The day in which the church is to be made most visible in the world, if it is not in worship, the day it's supposed to be visible, it's invisible. When the church isn't gathering according to the command of Christ and worshiping, what's happening? The church isn't being the church in the world. Yes, we don't observe the seventh-day Sabbath. That was circumstantial and ceremonial. But the moral application of the fourth commandment is that the Lord's day is to be kept holy. We are to be in worship. Unless you have a, 
a job that's vital to the preservation of the civil order or some work of necessity that's so vital that it can't be done without, then God's law commands this, worship. Setting aside, clearing off your calendar so you can meet with the Lord. That's what it commands. They show us their resolve in this, and the reason why they show us their resolve in this is they understand that if they don't do this, they won't be anything. The church will be consumed if it loses the Lord's day. It will be consumed from the face of this earth or from this country. If it rejects the Lord's day, this is exactly what will happen. Think about it, people of God. If we treat the Lord's day as something that is purely a matter of convenience to us, and what if all of us on the same day or two out of four days of the month decided we're just not showing up to church? I'd be standing here preaching to an empty room. And since I don't know how to use Facebook and all this technology, no one would be able to see anything that was being said here if I'm just speaking away by myself. You see, if we see it as a matter of convenience to us, well, the church will not be maintained. It's a day for us to rest from our ordinary labors in order that we may meet with the Lord. They covenanted, and by covenanting do this, they showed us the way. The last thing here, and I know I don't have any more time, but it's to maintain true worship. Uh, notice the long list of stuff, beginning at verse 32. They they promise to uh, to give away their tax and, and everything, and they become woodcutters and all of this. But the real heart of it to me is the last line of verse 39. I try to emphasize it in my reading thus. We will not neglect the house of the Lord. The word means to abandon. And I want you to notice what abandonment meant. Abandonment and neglecting the house of God meant not giving to it financially. That's what it meant. Look at the text. It talks about money. It talks about wood. It talks about bringing forth all this stuff. The first fruit, dough, all kinds. See, whether we like it or not, God has set up the life of the church where it requires giving. God did that. He did that when he set up a paid ministry within the church. And so some people feel it's kind of dirty to mention this, that the church needs to be sustained by the giving of the people of God. But the Bible doesn't shy away from it because the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, on the very first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside. No problem whatsoever. Paul is not blushing when he writes these words. It is the duty of the people of God to maintain the ministry and the worship of the church. That's precisely what is being indicated. They took a covenant and saying, thus, we will not neglect the house of God. And yet I marvel at how many people don't plan to give, don't intend to give, don't have a sense of duty to give. Why? Because it's their money. But I want you to hear again how Paul said it. Sit aside as God has prospered you. Your paycheck came from Jesus Christ, the Lord. So I say to all of us here this morning, whether parents or young adults who have gainful employment, this command is for you. Make sure you're giving. Make this line be yours. We will not neglect the house of our God. Oh, I know there's a lot of uncomfortable talk here this morning and it's late. And I think it's time to, to end. I marvel at this. I think we should too. Why did they do it? They did it for the well-being 
of the community of Zion. They covenanted to uphold this. They covenanted to commit themselves to this. And it's really four very simple yet fundamental things. And if you, if you take one of these out, you'll end up causing the whole house of cards to collapse. It's suspended upon the foundation which is the law of God. But that law of God, if it's not applied, is really no authority to you at all. I can say all day long, I love the law of God, and I love the scriptures, I just don't apply them. And so, it said, we uphold the law. We stand for the integrity of marriage and family. We swear to uphold and keep the the Sabbath day holy. We clear off our calendars to be in the house of the Lord to worship Him because that's our duty. And we will not neglect the house of God because if we don't sustain the church as God commands us to, well, there'll be no church to show up to where you keep the Sabbath day holy. They knew what they were swearing. They'd heard the law. And what they longed for was the blessing of God upon Zion. And they point the way. It begins with tasting grace. I don't want to leave you in despair. It begins with tasting grace. You should never not have the good news. It begins with tasting grace. They had tasted the grace. They had heard that God covenanted and sovereignly chose them in Christ. They had received the outflow of the mercies of God over and over again. And being persuaded of that. Being persuaded God had been gracious to them and covenanted with them, they covenanted with the Lord, and they covenanted about the things which are essential to the well-being of the church. To uphold the law, to maintain the integrity of the family and marriage, to keep the Lord's day, and to maintain the house of God. If we commit ourselves to these things, we can be sure that God will build Zion in our midst. Father, we thank you for many mercies in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of them have been poured about on us in greatest abundance and the richest measure you've done because you love us. We thank you for that. And we praise you that we stand in grace because of your sovereignty and of your mercy towards us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us then as those who've been redeemed, bought and paid for with precious blood, that we would take the covenant seriously. We are edified by the wonderful example of, of our spiritual forefathers as they took this covenant because they knew it's what needed to be done in order to, to turn a generation away from sin under allegiance to Jesus Christ, that it would be to the blessing of the people of God. Lord, help us to do the same. And knowing that as we commit ourselves to what is plain and essential and foundational, that your blessing won't fail to descend upon us as we do this to glorify you. So strengthen our hands to do this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.